Um, bear with us through our technological problems. Let me see if I can move my microphone one second. Yeah, we're zooming. We're zooming today. I'm having a, 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 listeners. I'm having a long Zoom day today. How about this? That sounds nice. Sounds nice. Yeah, we'll go with that. I think I'm good with that. Possibly, what happened is that when the microphone is in the box, um, the sensitivity knob on the side can get turned the wrong way. So it's probably yeah. that. Yeah, you do not want your sensitivity knob turned the wrong way at <laughs> any time. Hello and welcome back listeners. This episode was actually inspired by a book called The Celtic Dragon Myth that I bought from a fella selling books at the side of the road in Dublin a few months ago. Before we dive into Ireland's leathery and scaly cryptids, we need to respond to some friendly pushback from episode two that we got when we talked about St. Bridget. Yeah, but before we do that, we've got to say, hello, I'm Rab and this is Kerry. And this is the Celtic Tales Chronicles. Yes. <laughs> so, so, just so you all know. Um, I So people enjoyed it, but there was a bit of pushback. I think some folk were concerned that we were saying St. Bridget was a cryptid. Um, and I think it was because we mentioned that St. Bridget shared many attributes as a goddess Bridget. And we may have suggested that maybe St. Bridget was just made up. I'll I'll push back again and say you suggested that, Rob. I was in full St. Bridget mode, even went down to the river that day to collect reeds to make Bridget's crosses, you know, have crucifix on. Mm. I was feeling very holy altogether. You 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 had you were you were a fine yes, you were. And folk loved those wee uh, Bridget crosses you made. So yeah, I yeah, very off, popular, I'm gonna take yeah. it back. I accept you're pushing <laughs> on me there. I'm, I'm just going to clarify what I meant was it was interesting that the attributes of the goddess Bridget were also shared by St. Bridget, who may or may not have been a real person. And from all accounts, the stories passed down about these women. It showed that women could be very influential and respected in medieval Ireland. Absolutely. It was a very different place, medieval Ireland versus medieval Europe as a whole. And according to the folktales, St. Bridget invented beer, which is pretty great in my book, and also performed the very first abortion, helped women stop unwanted pregnancies, and she was a formidable mm. negotiator. So girl boss all around. And I stand utterly corrected and uh, <laughs> I, I think okay so what the stories are trying to tell us or the stories are telling us and they're telling me in particular is that women in the sixth century island had far more complex lives than we or me attribute to them all right yeah drinking engaging with powerful institutes and individuals having sex trying to figure out contraception they were very busy 
Dear God, and leading the Catholic Church at various times as well. So, okay. Uh, it would make sense then if there were women, you know, I'm just going to pause. <laughs> I, I am, I'm all for it. I'm just going to say, oh, yes. it makes sense. There was women and they used the power structures that existed of the new faith to carve out strong positions for themselves and their followers. And then it makes sense that the memory of that gets woven into folklore and it uses existing mythology and then that gets passed down through the generations. And that folkloric memory does also serve as a true reminder that women's lives are far more complex and fascinating than the ideologies that came to impact Irish society regarding women. Yeah, so yes, Bridget, or Bridget's plural, did exist in some form, and I actually bumped into a woman called Bridget yesterday, so they're still about, and it absolutely makes sense that the memory of them should be interwoven into the memory of the pagan goddess Bridget. So I hope I've clarified that. Yeah, absolutely. And that folkloric memory might not just include powerful Irish women, because Ireland was never an isolated country on the fringes of Europe. It was always engaged with the great political, religious and cultural shifts and debates going on in the wider world. And curiously, one of the tales about St. Bridget echoes a folk tale about another powerful woman who lived in North Africa 1,300 years before St. Bridget. As everybody knows, every child knows the story about St. Bridget and how she asked how she asked the King of Leinster for land to build a monastery. And he just laughed at her. So then she said, I only want as much land as my cloak can cover. And the king said, yeah, sure, why not? Yada, yada. So St. Bridget, according to the story, laid her cloak down and it grew and it grew and it grew until it covered a vast area of land. And that land came under the control of the monastery that St. Bridget built, and eventually it became the centre of religious life and learning in medieval Ireland. Curiously, there is an older story from North Africa that is very, very similar. As all students of classic civilizations, such as Rab and myself, know mm -hmm. that there was a moment in the early history of Rome when it had a military and economic rival in North Africa called Carthage. Carthage, like the religious foundation in Kildare, was said to have been founded by a woman. Her name was Dido, and she came from the royal family of Tyr in Lebanon. Yeah, and so there was a clash between her and her brother over who should rule Tyr or Tyre. I don't know. Please clarify somebody. Yeah, and eventually she had to flee westward and seek refuge from the king of the country we now call Tunisia. So Dido asked the local king for some land. Okay, but she asked for some land for her and her followers. Just a little bit of land. In fact, only as much land as could be enclosed by the hide of an ox. And the king said, sure, yeah, why not? Yada, yada. So Dido got an ox hide and she cut it into incredibly thin strips. Then she laid the strips out end to end and used them to surround an entire hill. And there was where she laid the foundations of Carthage, which is very ingenious and pretty awesome. 
Mm. We will never know exactly how St. Bridget or Dido got control of these vast areas of land. But both of these stories do suggest that they were pretty wily women who would use any means to get what they wanted and would think outside the box. Yeah, they would. And uh, I guess what we're trying to say is that folk tales, legends, weird stories of all sorts, they do f- contain real truths in them. Which, the 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 neatly brings <laughs> us back to tales of dragons. Yeah. So... Dragons have been used worldwide to symbolise many things, and in the case of Ireland, it could be said that the Celtic dragon represents the indomitable spirit of the Irish people. British built a prison called Kilmainham Jail and placed dragons over the entrance door. It's now a very popular museum in Dublin. These dragons are chained and have neck irons, and perhaps the symbol symbol. Symbology? Mm-hmm. Symbology? Okay. Shows that the colonial invaders sought control over the wild indigenous spirit of the Irish peoples. So I didn't actually know this until I read this book I got at the side of the road, but there are plenty of references to dragons in Irish mythology, not nearly as much as in Eastern mythology. For example, dragons are a huge part of Chinese folklore. Representing luck. Yeah, luck, power, wisdom, bravery, strength. Chinese dragons inspired everything from religious practices to the national emblem. It's kind of like the Irish shamrock. It's associated with the culture at large. Okay, but clarification. You can put a shamrock in your pint of Guinness. You cannot put a dragon in it. Or you can try, but I'm just saying issues. Might not go well, Um, yeah. Yeah. So, okay, so now listeners are wondering, where are these dragons mentioned in Irish myth? Well, there's Fern McCool. He fights a dragon called Arach. And we have St. Patrick banishing big fire-breathing she-devil and her snakes. And then we have St. Columba. He is over banishing the Loch Ness monster uh, over in Scotland. So there's, there's dragons everywhere. That's it. I think dragons and like sea serpents are probably interchangeable in the myths because they're like, well, what is a sea serpent but a wet dragon, really? Oh, yeah. yeah. No. But yeah, um, we can't yeah. forget about Brian Baru as well. Never forget him. Never forget him at all. No. Battling Sigurd Dragonai and his dragon ships, which are basically oh. Viking longboats. Yeah. Telling us, yeah, telling us that the Viking invaders from Orkney had stories and traditions around dragons themselves in the 11th century. So mm. that's like a rough outline of the thousand years of the dragon in the written records in Ireland. I mean, I think uh, it's pretty, it's kind of hard to separate I- Irish medieval culture and the Catholic mm. Church. They're almost kind of Become synonymous, even though I mean they are, but they are. There's, there's separate things going on there as well, and I think it's because a lot of our the written records come from monks and priests at this time. So yeah, but they do mention things. I mean, a dragon certainly gets mentioned. Um, you know, there's a fearsome dra- dragon of the Catholic Church. There's a dragon there as well, and his name is Marduk. And uh, I'm going to start that again. Excuse me. That's okay. 
in the Catholic Church, in that faith and those ideas, a dragon definitely gets mentioned. It's quite an important figure in that uh, Catholic Church, and that dragon was named Marduk. And uh, he had a very evil agenda for world domination. Appearing on the papal coat of arms in the Vatican city-state, Marduk comes from ancient Sumeria, and some believe that his story is the oldest dragon story in the Western world, over 7,000 years old. Marduk was the patron deity of the city of Babylon, so think biblical times. Yeah. Pretty cool. So basically, the Babylonian creation story has the god Marduk lead a rebellion of the gods against the goddess Tiamat. And many see this as a legend discussing the overthrow of the matriarchy. Oh, no, I've just going to say Marduk is a man, I presume. And yeah. he's just, he's concerned about a woman being the boss. He doesn't like a she-boss. Okay, Ugh. I'm just kidding. There's issues there and there's parallels. Um, Tiamat, the girl boss, Tiamat is shown to us as a huge snake with curved horns and a diamond-hatched body, which, as we know, is very similar to the Celtic dragon as shown in such books as the Books of Kells, which is awesome. Um, Marduk has many super weapons, and he defeated um, Tiamat, and he cut her body up into two parts, and they became the sky and the earth. And then Marduk then created humans from his own blood and bone. So, although this story is at odds with the Adam and Eve tale from the Bible, it's kind of like an allegory dating way back to biblical times, in fact, even beyond biblical times. Mm. And, uh, yeah. But then again, he, he, he comes to be seen as a false god, and his worship and cult led to the downfall of the Babylonian Empire. In sort of a sharp pivot, the Celtic dragon has long been seen a symbol of power, strength and magic in Celtic art, history and jewellery. In our mythologies, dragons were believed to be powerful, intelligent creatures with the ability to shapeshift and breathe fire. They were often depicted as large serpentine beasts with wings and were associated with the elements of earth, air, fire and water. So they were nearly like nature spirits. Yeah, unlike the, the evil dragons that kind of you find in English myth, in Celtic art, dragons are often depicted as guardian figures, protecting treasure and guarding against evil. They were also seen as symbols of strength and wisdom and were associated with kings and queens. Apparently, Fern McCool even had a belt carved ornately with depictions of dragons, which is lovely. So they show up in countless works of literature. Homer, from, you know, way back when, classical civilization, describes, not Homer from The Simpsons, (laughs) describes the shield of Hercules as having a scaly horror of a dragon depicted. Arthur, you know, Knights of the Round Table, carries a dragon on his helm, which is referenced, sorry, by Spencer in The Fairy Queen. And plenty of Christian tales do reference dragons as well. In Wales, St. Samson is said to have seized a dragon and cast it into the sea. 
And the life of the Irish saint Aban tells us how he saw a beast in the sea having a hundred heads, two hundred eyes, and he prayed to God to strike this beast down, which God did. So there you go. Oof. You ever see a dragon? Just start praying. Yeah. Joe, we're going to have to go back to that because we have to do a, a cryptid part two because I'm just thinking, I, I can actually tell you there's some more dragons and sea monster stories from Ireland. There's actually quite mm. a few. Can we do a second episode in this? Absolutely. I'm sure there'll be the demand for it. And I think there's plenty of, um, there's plenty more cryptids we don't cover in this episode because similar to the saints in, you know, um, Ireland and the UK, there's a saint for everything. And there's also a cryptid for everything when you think about it. There's another book, 70 Years of Irish Life by W.R. Lefanu. Is he the father of um, the horror writer? Oh, maybe actually, yeah. It's a it's a very unique surname, so I'm thinking. Yeah, yeah, because he writes some lovely stories as well. But anyway, I think this may be his father. Uh, the ghosts of the Lafano family, please give us a shout. Um, and in his book, he states that the lakes of were haunted. The lakes of Ireland were haunted by demonic serpents, and that these beliefs they still persisted in Ireland well into the 19th century. Yeah. And yeah, Kerry, you've got a quote for the book. I'm going to hand it over to you. You quote the book. Yes, yeah, so this is a long quote, so bear with me. But the dreadful beast, the worm, half fish, half dragon, still survives in many a mountain lake, seldom seen, indeed, but often heard. Near our fishing quarters in Kerry, there are two such lakes. One, the beautiful little lake at the head of the Blackwater River, called Loch Bryn, from Bryn, or Bran, as he is now called, the dreadful worm which inhabits it. The man who minds the boat there speaks with awe of Bran. He tells me he has never seen him, and hopes he never may, but has often heard him roaring on a stormy night. On being questioned what the noise was like, he said it was like the roaring of a young bull. Some miles further on, between Lochbrin and Glencar, there is another lake from which a boy while bathing was driven and chased by the dreadful worm which dwells in it. End quote. That's, that's, that's amazing, the lake stuff. I mean, the lakes are very magical. We covered this in the UFO episode as well. Yeah. You know magical things floating over the lakes as well as living in the lakes and lakes just water itself is a very powerful conduit of things from other dimensions so yeah i think it's safe to say there's a lot of dragons around ireland especially in the lakes and i do wonder if if the bogs were wet enough for sea serpents would we get more yeah. in the bogs as well so yeah if you're out cutting the turf and a bog dragon jumps out to you. Is that, that, yeah, you go. There's a, maybe a Let's listeners not tempt have met a bog dragon. Oh. Yeah, yeah. Somebody Don't needs to contact fate. Gordon Amona. Okay. It's maybe their new green policy. Yeah. Support yeah, they're saying the stop cutting turf. Dragons will get you. That's a, that's, you know, that would keep me out of the bog. Keep me out of the bog in the middle. Okay. So now we're going to jump into a fable. 
that uses an evil dragon as a sort of a bad figure to make her hero sound extra cool. And this will lead neatly into her next cryptid figure. So, go. That's it. Cliffhanger. So, I read a story in the book that I have about Celtic dragons where an evil dragon wants to steal away the princess of the realm and a stable boy known as the Grey Lad, who's the son of a fisherman, goes and asks... Sorry, I'm turning my page of my script. Asks the princess of the kingdom to comb his hair and she says okay fine because he has long beautiful hair so when she asks how she will wake him up because he wants to sleep he says cut off the tip of my left ear which is metal af i would just set an alarm but that's just me she does this because he's going to save her from the dragon So he goes down to the beach to fight the dragon that wants to steal away this princess and he cuts off one of the dragon's three heads and delivers it straight to the castle. As you do. And then the next night, he goes back and he cuts off the next head, delivering it to the kitchen in the castle, bound up in ropes. And then, you know, he keeps going back every night until he's slaying the dragon. However, duh, 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 the cook in the castle says that it was him. That oh. The cook killed the dragon. Did the cook say he killed the dragon? I'm confused here. What's going on with this cook? Yes, sorry. He says that he's killed the dragon. He said, oh, I'm the one who saved you, princess, so you have to marry me. The cook said that? Yeah. Do you know what? I've worked in some kitchens in my life, and I'm going to say... A lot of cooks I've worked with, the chefs, they're wonderful. But some of them, I can actually see them doing that. Cooks are crooks. Cooks are crooks, absolutely. So anyway, he says to the princess, oh, hen, I killed the dragon, marry me. He's also from Glasgow, this cook. Aye. <laughs> and the stable boy says nothing. He hugs his wish, just like, says nothing. Then the princess is like, oh, shit, I don't want to marry a cook. She's she's got issues. His hair is minging. It's he's bogging hair. She likes bogging hair. Boy. She bog doesn't want hair. it. No. So to get around this, then the princess says, "I'll only marry the man who's able to loosen the knots on the ropes binding the dragon's heads." So obviously he you know threw some rope around the dragon's heads to transport them up to the castle. So the cook can't unravel the knots because he didn't tie them. And none of ah. the other men in the castle can do it either. Oh. So we're at a standstill. Picture this. They're all in the okay. grand hall. The stable boy goes up quietly and he opens the knots. And they're all oh. like, whoa. And then the way they're able to tell for sure that he slayed the dragon and he is the, you know, he's the boy the princess was talking about is because yeah. the first night the princess cut off the tip of his left ear and lo and behold, yeah. he's missing yeah. the tip of his left ear. Whoa, do, 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 do. And that is not any more complicated than getting a date on Tinder. Exactly. <laughs> Rob, you're dead right. That's absolutely it. Okay. So she says, um, all this, look, I've cut, I cut that ear off. The ear's missing a bit. So... That proves he's the one that slew the dragon. And so now I'm going to marry him. 
and it's all very beautiful. And then they go for a walk down the beach, as you do, to kind of reminisce and kind of ah, hang out happily ever after. No, that doesn't happen. That's completely wrong. What happens, Kerry? So then this massive mermaid pops up out of nowhere and says, it has been many years since you were promised to me because, get this plot twist alert, the boy's father, who we said was a fisherman, promised him to this mermaid when he was born and never gave him to the mermaid. So she's come to collect her debt. No, that's... That's like the second half of the story I told last night from Scotland. Exactly. So similar. The mermaid's like, give me this boy. And he's like, ah, I didn't even know I was supposed to go with you. What's going on? Like, That's fantastic. So that's a Irish tale from way back. And there's a Scottish tale from not so way back. And I've got the mermaid and the boy. Oh, wow. Anyway, I think what we know is mermaids out there, listen. See that fisherman that's promised you the firstborn son? They won't do it. They never do it. That's the whole point they of the story. Mermaids never get the child. And then finally, somehow, the child will be taken somehow. And do you know what? I don't think anybody ever learns from this. There's, there's no issues between mermaids and fishermen and firstborn children. Okay. So anyway, the, the mermaid, she takes a scunner to this whole thing. And she swallows the boy alive. She's a big mermaid. She's a fine, big, brawl mermaid. And yeah. the princess, she's screaming. Screaming stuff. And she's crying. Boo-hoo, boo-hoo. She's getting very emotional. And then she's going, oh, my God, this is terrible. No way. She runs to the castle for help. And in the castle, there just happens to be wise old man. He says, take all your jewels, take everything beautiful, take your hat and play and wait for the mermaid to return. So the princess does as she's told, because you always have to listen to the wise old man. She plays the music on her harp and the mermaid swims up and says, play on, play on, keep going. And then the princess says, no, not till I see my man. So the mermaid opens her mouth. And the princess can see her husband inside the mermaid's stomach. And the mermaid says, give me your jewels and whatnot. And the princess says, only if you return my husband. So it is getting a bit confusing here, listeners, because none of these characters have names. So let's call the man Jim. Well, let's do. Yeah, so Jim. All right. So the mermaid says, here, look, there's Jim. And she bokes him up and (laughs) wow. Jim, just, Jim, is vomited up. He's like, oh, Jimmy Mac. He's stalling there. And then, just as you think that everything's going to be fine, he turns into a bird, as you do. He turns into a bird because now he's magic. And he flies away. And then the mermaid, she's annoyed that he got away because she was actually planning on, on swallowing him down again. Am I picking up euphemisms here? I don't know. Anyway, so the mermaid <laughs> steals the princess now, of course, because she still like needs her dinner, as it were. So it's terrible. So Jim's magic now, because he was inside the mermaid, I guess. 
He flies away yeah. and he looks back and he's like, ah, shit, now I have to go fight this mermaid to get my wife back. How am I going oh, to do God. that? So it turns out the wise old man tells Jim that the mermaid's life force or her soul is inside an egg, which is inside a trout, which is huh? under a house on a lake. Rob, what's the exact location of this mermaid's soul? It's in an egg, which is in a fish. Which is in a duck, which is in a ram, which is in a wood, under a house, on an island, in a lake. Very precise. Sounds like haggis. You know? When it's like, it it's... It is. It's... What? I know haggis is a bunch of things inside other things. So, yeah, is, if you don't yeah. know, just Google it. Rab could tell you, yeah. but it's, it's, it's a, a good secret, so... Like, and, my fellow Scots would have to kill me if I revealed the secret. Exactly. Basically, all right, so we're going to put her soul in a haggis-like object beneath. Yes. So we don't think that Jim obviously had Google Maps back then, so we're going to skip that oh. part. He shapeshifts into a load of animals to get this egg. He finally locates it, and then he brings it to the beach where the mermaid is waiting for him. And as soon as the mermaid sees Jim with her egg, she screams and says, she'll do whatever he wants. Don't break that egg. That's my life force. Please don't break that egg. So Jim says, grand, give me back my princess. Give me my wife and your egg will be fine. The mermaid bleh, vomits up the princess and Jim is a backstabber because he crushes oh. the egg anyways. And the mermaid collapses oh. on the rocks, dead, just like the dragon. Why say fuck's sake? That's shocking. Honestly, the poor mermaid, she only went to the meal and a hug or maybe a shag or something. She wanted comfort, yeah. okay? And Jim and the princess, I think they need to reflect on what they did there. I mean, I think they need to... You know what? They may have overreacted. However, not all Irish mermaids meet with such grim endings, nor are they as evil and monstrous. Too right. We have selkies, marrows, and more. Scotland has kelpies and kessig too. So I think we need to define each type of mermaid. Yeah, quick fire round, go Kerry. So a selkie is a mythical creature that resembles a seal in the water, but assumes human form on land by shedding their seal skin. They can be trapped on land if you hide this seal skin. The Kessig is a mermaid in Scottish folklore with the upper body of a beautiful woman merging with the tail of a young salmon. A marrow is the main Scottish and Irish version of a mermaid. They require a magical red cap in order to travel between deep waters and dry land. A kelp is a magical shape-shifting spirit inhabiting lochs in Irish and Scottish folklore. And it's usually described as a grey or white horse-like creature able to adapt to human form. The kelp is very well known and respected. It's a very well known respected Scottish cryptid. In fact, there are two massive statues, Kerry, the two really beautiful, massive statues mm. of the kelpie. With it, it's the, and it's shape of a horse. It's a horse head Kelpie statues and they're located on the Forth and Clyde Canal at the point where it, they open up to a new canal extension and I'm telling the statues, they're absolutely beautiful and they're 30 metres high and they're really incredible. That's massive, yeah. 
So a Kelpie, if it could be captured, had the strength of 10 horses. But Andy Scott, the artist who made these statues, wanted to move from the mythic references to, quote, a socio-historical monument intended to celebrate the horse's role in industry and agriculture, as well as the obvious association with the canals as tow horses. Yeah, but here's the curious thing. The curious thing about Kelpies, we can respect their strength, just like industrialization. But there's another side to the Kelpies. They're also destroyers. This is why I love all these old folk tales and stories so much, because the truths in them always seem to remain relevant. And the truth here is to be very mindful of the power you're trying to control, because that power could kill you. You gained control of the Kelpie by getting a hold of its bridle, but that was not the easiest thing to do, and not everybody understood that you had to do that. A lot of people, the Kelpie just looked like a big, beautiful horse, which meant that some people, in particular children, who I guess lacked the understanding of what the creature was, they'd be lured towards it. Oh, and once these children had got up on its back, the Kelpies would drag them under the water and eat them. So just as industrialization is now consuming our entire planet and destroying it, you know, if you if you didn't know how to act with a Kelpie, you could die. Yeah. yeah. It's just amazing all these little old stories that have immediate relevance to now. I just think it's incredible. And there's another funny thing about the Kelpies is there's, there's an Irish version, um, the Capalesca and the Water Horse. And I actually have a friend from Kanamara who saw one of these when he was a child, but he oh knew God. to keep away from it. Yeah, he, he knew keep away from it because the Capalesca, they take the form of, a, again, a strong, fine, handsome-looking horse. And they can be tamed, but the thing is they would be constantly trying to get back to the water. And if they got the chance, they would gallop back to the river or the lake they came from and they would drown the rider who was on their back. So there you go. That's it. You have to be careful. I have memories myself of seeing marrows in lakes as a child and they could be false memories i could be misremembering but yeah. there's just as likely of a chance that it actually happened so it's pretty like i have such vivid memories yeah. of those things happening so yeah i would love to hear more about this friend who saw kapalishka yeah i mean i have memories so, as well of magical things hmm. and you don't know when you did it happen and then when you're older you change the memory to say, oh, it was just imagination, or did it actually really happen? Yeah. It's, yeah. We maybe talk about those things in another episode. Yeah. So yeah, anyway. that'd be really interesting. So as well as water horses, Ireland and Scotland also have similar tales of mermaid-type creatures and water spirits, which are found in oral tales and music and art as well. There are stone and bronze carvings, paintings and songs. And Wajinwara is a song that tells the tale of a man who went out fishing one day and a mermaid came to the stern of his boat wearing a cloak. He stole this cloak from her and she came home with him. He hid the cloak, they married and had two children. But one day the daughter saw this beautiful cloak 
in the house and she told her mother about it. The mother went, retrieved her cloak and returned to the sea. But she was very close to her daughter, so she would come every day and comb the girl's hair and the song is the conversation that took place between them. Truly beautiful. And again, even just listen to that very simple version. It's obvious what the truths are in there, the, the mother and the daughter. So, yeah, and like this beautiful song, there are many tales of similar kind of creatures of the Selkies, and they get trapped on land by men who wish to marry them. And those stories are popular on islands and rural coastal communities. At its core, the legend is of a creature that's half fish or seal and half human. And some do say that the origins of the Selkie myth actually stem from Scottish and Irish ancient peoples coming into contact with Finnish or Sami travellers who were thought to be Selkies because of their use of sealskin coats and kayaks. So as they became waterlogged, these boats would start to submerge. And so the Sami traveller would be required to stop and dry their sealskin clothing and boats out before continuing onwards take their fishtails away from them and it's true enough that this selkie cannot return to the sea. Spot a person removing their sealskin clothing and setting it down to dry on the rocks and you might just think that you've witnessed transformation from seal to human. As we said earlier, the Mero is a mermaid or merman who needs a magical cap in its possession in order to travel between deep water and dry land. In the land of the ancient Celts, they were described as beautiful mortal women swimming in the sea. However, the surface of the water hid the fish-like tails of these strange supernatural creatures. The comb was a magical symbol of feminine power in Celtic mythology. They are said to dwell in the land beneath the waves, tearful tune. So sailors and fishermen alike find the marrow irresistible especially when these sea fairies would comb their silken hair. And it was not just out at sea that these creatures could be seen. In the early 19th century, the Scottish civil engineer Alexander Nemo designed a new harbour for the Clada, which is still known as Nemo's Pier. However, no sooner had it been built than a mermaid came visiting every low tide. There she would sit on the rocks below the pier, combing her hair, and looking like she was in a fashion photo shoot for Vogue or yeah. Bobby now. Yeah. And of course, the local boys wanted to get a closer look at this scantily clad, lovely lady, fish person. But they got a bit too close. She got annoyed yeah. and she swam away and never returned. And to be fair, it's no wonder that these Merrow women took to the surface to find a husband as Mero men were said to be hideously ugly to the point that the mermaids refused to take them as mates. Those Aww. with the surnames. I know, it's kind of sad. It's, it's like, not their oh, fault. body shaming. I mean, just because of the heads of a yeah. green pig with fangs and red eyes. <laughs> what about their personality? That's what I want so to true. So those with the surnames of O'Flaherty and O'Sullivan in County Kerry and County Clare are actually believed to be descended from unions with human men. Little is known about the Merrow men, 
except that their bodies were covered in emerald scales with stunted limbs and green hair. It is said that they are so bitter over their appearance and their loneliness that they capture the spirits of drowned sailors and keep them incarcerated under the sea in a desperate attempt at revenge. Oh, issues. Just going to say issues. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. I guess that's a pretty different story from the earlier one of the huge mermaid swallowing the wee man. This is a very different well, one. It's, yeah. But it's again, there's, 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 do you know, there is similarities though. She's swallowing a man and they're capturing a man's soul. And then in that earlier story, he has to get her soul. Yes, there's lots of, there's things moving between the, all these stories. Yeah, yeah, there's lots of threads of similarity. And I think the thing is, it's hard to discern what size a mermaid actually was. But I yeah. think that they were like cats. And they come in all shapes and sizes from lions and tigers to t- tame little house cats. Yeah, I think that's true. And maybe there were different species of merfolk as well. Um, there's written accounts of Mero women luring unsuspecting Irishmen. And these accounts, they date right back to the ancient annals of the Kingdom of Ireland. Um, indeed, even the all-powerful demigods of chaos, known as the Fomorians, were not immune to the charms of these um, fish beings. Legend tells that at Cologne Abbey in County Clare, a Mero swam up to the lake to enter the crypts and steal wine from the cellars. <gasps> She was caught and killed. But before she died, she dragged herself back to the lake where it is believed that every 40 years the water turns red from her blood. That is terrifying. And apparently this lake does have red clay, but I'm choosing to believe that that's unrelated. No, that's purely coincidental. Purely coincidental. So dating back to as recently as 1936. So my granny was actually born when this happened. Wow. So I know. So not that long ago. So in Renville, County Galway, there were reported sightings of the more elusive Merrow men. Two fishermen, mm. Martin Hinu and Thomas Regan, were approached by a Merrow man in a cove. And this bearded creature grabbed at their cura. One of this fisherman, one of these fishermen, went to hit the creature with his oar, but then the other man stopped him. For superstition dictates that the man who strikes a marrow with his oar would die within the year. And in the 1960s, so when my parents were born, there was a reported sighting of marrow women at Kilconley Point in Kerry. So really, one generation ago. Mary made sightings in Kerry. Your name is Kerry. You have long hair. Live by a beach. Okay, okay. (laughs) (laughs) And blink three times if you need help retrieving your red cap from your boyfriend, Kerry, because questions have to be answered. Questions have to be answered. Do you like swimming in Galway Bay? I'm just asking. No comment. (laughs) No comment. Fine. Do you know what? I'm just remembering that I mean, these stories are all about the power of nature and mm. the mystery of it and the things that happen. Because it's not a, a, a Merrill story as such, but if you go to the 
Declada nowadays, listeners, if you're in Galway or coming to Galway, there's a there's a kind of a, a monument there to some Clara fishermen. I think it's seven, eight, or nine of them lads who their boat they were going. This is the nineteen twenties, I think, or so, and they were taking their fishing boat down the coast to go to a wedding, and out of nowhere on this beautiful day, a huge wave came up, swallowed the boat. And all of them drowned, just like that, in an instant. Oh, my God. And there's a monument to them in the Clada. There's a lot of folk tales came off that incident. But it just shows you that is nature is powerful and magical and inexplicable. Crazy stuff happens for no reasons. And that's, yeah, so these stories of the, the sea cryptids, the kind of, I think they all tie in with that, trying to make sense of that. The sheer madness and wonder of nature. Nature is crazy. This is a complete tangent unrelated to mermaids, but I remember hearing, I think it was last year, you they can make music with mushrooms because Whoa. mushrooms actually make noise. So you can like plug in, I don't know how exactly how it works, but you can basically plug in speakers to mushrooms yeah. and take the noise of the mushrooms, the, the frequency that they you know, grow on or whatever. And yeah. you can make like EDM music. So like nature is crazy. Oh. People, like truly fact is stranger than fiction. Yeah, I think all these things are starting to reveal about nature is, is it how alive it is. Like trees that talk yeah. to each other or look after each other when they're sick. Yeah. And the thing is, we're only learning it now because we're actually in the middle of destroying nature. <laughs> we're I know. It. Whereas there was that, all that's been in our folklore and myths for from the start so yeah anyway yeah back anyway to, back to it so to another it. thing i want to look at is there's actually like i said earlier there's a patron saint for everything there's actually a patron saint of mermaids in christianity oh, pretty cool cool yeah so her name was liban and in the legend surrounding the formation of loch Ness is where we get her story okay. basically there was a family living on the land where the lake was going to form. A spring burst under their house. And when the lake formed, Liban's family was drowned. But she survived in an underwater chamber in the lake for a year. After which, she was transformed into a being who was half human and half salmon. Together with her lapdog, which... It survived as well, but it took on the form of an otter. Yeah. And now this otter, this mermaid. And we'll get, we do have to do a second episode of this because there is otter cryptids as well. We can talk about next episode. And she was free to roam the seas for 300 years while maintaining the same dwelling under the law. So she appears canonized as St. Murrin or Morgan in genealogies of Irish saints and her feast day is actually assigned to the 27th of January so just three weeks ago from when we're recording and in her mermaid form yeah I know next year we'll put it in the calendar no I think that's Burns that's the the day of the Burns suppers as well in Scotland the 27th of January there's there's threads and there's threads I might be wrong but anyway carry on there's lots going on on the 27th of January if it's your birthday you might be a mermaid 
So in her mermaid form, she was spotted by a ship which was carrying a messenger sent by St. Congal to Rome and her angelic singing caught the ship's attention. She promised to meet at the seaport inlet of Larn Loch in Ireland after one year and she turned up but she got captured in a fishnet and there she was baptised by Comgall and given the christened name Morgan but died is it Morgan or Morin? I think it could be Morgan. I think you might be right. I might have mispronounced it. If yeah. anybody would so, like to let us know, please do. If the yeah. Christian saint herself would like to reach out, that would be great. Yeah, do it. Um, but she was captured. She was baptized. She became Morin or Morgan. And she immediately died and she ascended to heaven. And she forfeited another 300 years of longevity for a Christian soul. And again, that's got threads and threads and threads and threads. So she's survived. She's lived under a lake. She's lived for a long bit of time. She could carry on living, but she gets, but she chooses, to, in a sense, she chooses to get caught and blessed and become a Christian. So even though her life is cut short, she goes to heaven. And there's echoes there of other stories we could go into. I'm sitting mm. here thinking of a lot of stories like that. Even the, the children of Lear, they, 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 the swans yeah. live long lives and then they're blessed and then they immediately die and go to heaven as well. So there's all these, ah yeah, there's, there's millions of them. I think we will end up like, you know, um, in movies when someone is trying to solve a case and they have one of those crazy boards where it's like a load of pictures connected by different red strings. We're going to yeah, end up like yeah. that, trying to connect it all and we'll all just go crazy. But you know what? It's it's for the podcast, so it's worth it. The truth is out there. We're not mad. <laughs> <laughs> so back to Liban. She had lost her whole family and she was free yeah. to roam the seas and live in this lake. And now she's dead because she got a Christian soul. That's not a great deal. That's not a great advertisement for having a Christian soul. I'm just going to say now. And mm. do you know what? In the, if we, we are going to do a second episode, I'm going to tell you what happened to her wee dog. Because I know. Oh, you know what happened to her wee dog? Wow. I was going to say, do. maybe there's an immortal otter living in Loch Ness. Do you know what? Spoiler alert. <laughs> yeah. Good to know. Um, wow. We'll have to go on tour. True. We should take these stories, the show, the podcast, and just tour around talking until folk just drag us off that's my yeah. plan sounds good well coming soon to a soapbox near you Celtic Tales on tour so yep. stay tuned folks we may be going otter hunting in Northern Ireland before the year is out the only question I guess is how we would know which otter is the right one I know that answer too but I'm not going to tell you but so you'll have to tune in the next time you're forced dun, dun, to listen dun. to the next episode. Because with this, it, that stunning revelation about don't get a Christian soul because it means you're going to die. Um, with that, we've reached the end of our cryptid, our first cryptid episode. And uh, of, of at least two, if not more. Yes, so thank you so much for listening, guys. If you have a spooky tale you want us to look into or you want to share, send us an email at theCelticTalesChronicles at gmail.com.
And with that, yeah. I think we're going to go, you know, start pinning pictures to the to the crazy board. I think we do. I think I'm, if you actually go, go through all our episodes, I'm realising there's little things threading their way through. And yeah. You know, but we could end up like conspiracy theorists. We could bring in JFK at some point, <laughs> moon landing, and tie up. Oh JFK was shot by a mermaid. Okay, you I'm heard it here first. Can I tell you a quick cryptid story? Very quick. Yes. I know we're finished. Bonus. Okay, there was this conspiracy thing that whale oil was being used for satellites. It wasn't. But what it came from was that whale oil, um, it, it, it's, it, it can survive, it stays fluid at very, very cold temperatures. And so oh. the poor whales were just doing their whale thing, whatever whales do, hanging about. And folk were putting them and killing them to get the oil. And at the start of the motor trade, they used whale oil as a lubricant for cars, for the early cars, because it wouldn't freeze in winter and stuff. And then that was where it came from. Then they realised they started getting more cars and they were running out of whales. They began to develop um, chemicals that would kind of synthetic whale oil. And then that's the stuff that eventually became oil that's used for moon landers and all that kind of thing. So there you go. I don't know where that came from, but there's an interesting fact. Another fact to add to our world tour. Yeah, wow, that is very interesting. There's so many, um, as you said, like little threads of motifs we've looked into more than once yeah. that have led into other episodes. Um, either there'll be a crazy board or I'll make a big Excel spreadsheet, one of the two. So stay tuned, guys. But yeah, thank you so much thank for you. listening. And thank you, Rab, for sharing that tale. Thank you. Do you have any news before we head off? Do I have any news? Well... Net, so we've the crane live shows have started back up which is very exciting they have. Uh, yeah. so you'll see us at the crane on thursday nights at eight um Ooh. i won't be at the crane next week because i'm going to visit my friend emer in dublin who rab knows um so that'll be very nice looking forward to that uh apart from that i've been drying some flowers recently so i've lots of dried flowers in my house which is quite nice oh, very nice very nice yeah that's been my little my little hobby. The month of love, you know, when you receive flowers, I kind of want to keep them forever. Even though I suppose Aww. that's part of the flowers, you want to, you know, they don't last forever. But I'm I'm one of those people who wants to hold on to them as long as I can. No, I get that. I get that. That's lovely. That's really really nice. Can you go? You got you going to press them on a book or anything? That's a great shout. Yeah, I have some rose petals I'd like to press. I think I quite like um sticking them into notebooks and things like that. I think it's ah. uh it's a lost art, so I'm trying to bring that back, at least in my own my own little circle. And what about you, Rab? Any news on your end? Um I'm 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 doing some lovely workshops in uh Very busy. various schools and the university. Ugh. Is the University here in Galway, <laughs> University of Galway, and uh, yeah, I'm just having a busy out with that and having a lot of fun. So I'm looking forward to listening to a new podcast. Not ours is a fantastic podcast. There's another fantastic podcast called Aged. Have you heard of it? I sure have, because I'm actually hosting and producing it, Rob. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. No way. Um, 
So that's in collaboration with Ethereal Magazine here in Galway. And basically, yes. it's a platform for young creatives. I'm going to be interviewing people based mostly in the west of Ireland who are, you know, I have a fantasy writer on the books. I have a comedian. Oh. I have some other people. Oh. Um, so, yeah, no, definitely keep an eye out. First episode will be dropping on the 1st of March. So if you follow Ethereal Mag on Instagram, and the Kerry Graham on Instagram, you'll get updates there. All right. And you can follow me on Instagram at Celtic Tales Galway. And yeah, just follow yeah, us and it. stay tuned. Tell folk about the show. Rate and review. We're getting lots of lovely uh, reviews and rates, which is great. So please keep them coming because every time you do that, other folk go, wow, this is something we need to check out. So thank you all very much for that and the comments and even the pushbacks. So it's all good. Yeah. I think we're finished now, aren't we? I think that's it. Thank you so much for listening, guys. And I'll leave you with Slan. Slan. The Celtic Tales Chronicles is written, hosted, and produced by Kerry Graham and Rob Fulton. Edited by Rob Fulton. Cover artwork by Kerry Graham. Music by Kevin McLeod.